0: Before we get there, I just want us to do a little bit of thinking about the background to this book, just to kind of whet our appetites before we actually get into it. As I said, I mean, we're doing a part of a two-week series on 2 and 3 John and as soon as you open your Bibles up to them, probably the first thing that will strike you about them is just how short they are. They're not so much letters of the New Testament, as we, but as we were pointing out last week, they're more like sort of postcards. Now, the real advantage about postcards is that they've got really great punchy messages or at least the good ones have. I mean, I think a great example uh, was one by a guy called Robert Benchley. He was a writer for the New Yorker in the 20s and when sent on assignment to Venice, uh, he was asked to report back and after several weeks came back simply with streets flooded, please advise. So much as... Oh, that didn't go down nearly as well as I'd hoped. Oh, well, never mind. sounded funny in my office this morning. But so do 2 and 3 John. They've got exactly the same kind of punchy message. But their message isn't streets flooded, please advise. It's walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. You can see it there in verse 4 of 2 John. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Or in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, But he's not just talking about truth generally, he's talking about a very specific truth, the truth of the Christian message, the truth of what Christians call the Gospel. Now, he doesn't really go on to explain exactly what that is in this letter, it's too short, but we know exactly what he means from a previous letter he wrote, 1 John. If you look briefly at 1 John chapter 5 verse verse 9, 1 John chapter 5 verse 9, he's talking about what this truth is. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony, the truth, is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son, in verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That is the truth that John is going on about, and that's the truth of Christianity. That is Christianity in a nutshell. that's what we're all about that Jesus Christ came to die for us sinful people who have rejected God so that we can be right with him. That's the picture he's on about. Now, as Christians, of course, we want to be people who are on about truth and on about this truth. We want to be walking in the truth of this good news. I mean, the world around us has such a cynical attitude about truth. Mark Twain satirised that when he said, truth is the most valuable thing we have. Let us economise it. But no, we don't want to economise truth. We want to stand up for it. And in 2 John we see one facet of standing up for the truth. In that case he's writing to a church which is having being attacked by false teachers who want to come in and teach that Jesus wasn't actually a real person, that he didn't actually incarnate in the flesh, that he was just a mythical being or just a spiritual being and for them walking in the truth means to resist those false teachers. But in 3 John we see the mirror image of that. Whereas 2 John was all about walking in the truth by resisting false teachers, here we see the mirror image of that. To walk in the truth here is to accept good teachers. Resist false teachers, accept good teachers. Now it all sounds very easy, until we actually look at the scenario that 3 John faces us with. Just before we have it read to us, I'd like you to picture this scene. You're in a one-room house in first century Turkey. A man named Gaius, the owner of that house, is reading a letter, standing in the corner. And it's actually the same letter that we have in front of us now, except in Greek. This letter's from his very dear friend John, the Apostle John. And both John and Gaius are good mates. They've visited one of those churches. In the letter we see greetings to and from. They're obviously good friends. And John has said in this letter, you can look it up in verse 12, wants to come and visit him. But in the meantime he hasn't been able to visit him. But some missionaries who've swung past Gaius's church have been to John's church and have said, Gaius, doing really well, standing up for the, for the truth in the church, it's great. John has then sent those teachers back to Gaius And they've almost certainly been the people who've carried this letter. And there they are in Gaius' house standing off at one distance as they watch Gaius read this letter. Gaius puts the letter down on the table, sits down on the table and has a really long hard think about its contents because it's not an easy letter for him to read. So to understand that, let's have Fiona up and read it and then we'll get into it.
1: Free John, the Elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the Church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the Church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name.
0: Thanks very much.
1: Now as we read through that letter we see
0: three main characters crop up. Gaius, uh, Diotrophes, and Demetrius. And I think they're a good way of looking at the letter in a whole as understanding it. So if you're a note taker the first point is simply called Gaius. Now he's the first person we meet in this letter and straight away we're struck by his character He's a good man who's faithful to the truth and, again, a key word, continues to walk in it. Look at verse 3. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. But now John is encouraging him not only to continue to walk in that but to demonstrate that walk through how he acts. Look at me at verses 5 to 8. Dear friend, You are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. You see these missionaries who are huddled in Gaius' house waiting for him to finish the letter and waiting for his decision as to what he will do They're not like the false teachers of 2 John who refused to acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. No, on the contrary, these are the kind of people who you want in your house. These are the kind of people you want in your church. They're good teachers. It says there in verse 7, it's for the sake of the name, that is, Jesus' name they went out from John's church to go and preach. These are the good guys. We want these people in our churches and therefore... Even though it says here, you can look in verse 5, they're kind of relative strangers to Gaius, far from rejecting them, as he should the teachers of 2 John, he should actually show hospitality to them. In a way it even says here that's worthy of God. So that is what it means here to accept the truth and to walk in the truth, to accept good teaching and teachers and promote them. Now, how does that actually apply to us? Well, I think it applies in a couple of ways. Generally, I think it has to mean that we need to do the same thing. We need to accept good teachers who hold on to the Gospel. They're the kind of teachers that we want in our churches and the kind of teachers who don't do that are the people we don't want in our churches. It's important to have sound doctrine. That's absolutely right and 2 John makes it abundantly clear. But sometimes I wonder if, Because we're so well-educated in evangelical churches, we can sometimes almost get too pedantic. We can also become too picky. People come home from sort of Sunday morning church and have roast preacher for lunch. (laughs) Or in uh, in Bible study, you've probably, obviously, you've just had some roach. I hope you didn't have a roast this morning, this afternoon, Linda. Or you have people in Bible studies, you can see the person there, the eager beaver. You're the Bible study leader, you're going through it, you're thinking, okay, I know what I'm going to say here, and you can see them. They're almost sitting forward on their chair, their pen is ready to pounce, they're ready to go. As soon as you mutter something, even the slightest bit that might not come from the passage, you know you're going to get jumped on from a great height. Now, that kind of thing is just not helpful, is it? It's just not the kind of thing you want. Pedantry doesn't help anyone. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we should be sloppy. We should be very tight with our doctrine and we always want to be coming closer to the truth but we've all got faults, we've all got errors and let's face it, if they're minor but that teacher is holding on to the sound doctrine of the Gospel, the truth that was passed down, the testimony of God from 1 John, they are the kind of person we want in our churches. That's the kind of teacher we want and the kind of teachers we should be supporting. But I think that we can apply it more specifically than that as well though, can't we? because this letter tells us a lot about what our attitude should be towards missionaries. Let me just give you two. Financial support. We should be financially supporting missionaries. I think that's a great way in which we can support and show hospitality to missionaries. In fact, it's funny that John here makes a particular point of singling out hospitality as something for Christians to do in verse 7 because well, no one else will. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. And of course you can't expect pagans to fund Christian ministers, so all the more reason for us to do so. It just so happens that later on tonight we'll be having a presentation from Stuart Brooking. He's from the Australian Overseas Council, which is the body that sponsors the Myanmar Bible College. I think you can be pretty sure that the Myanmar military junta is not going to be funding that Bible College. So where are they going to get the money from? Well, it's not going to be from taxes, it's going to be from us and from other like-minded people in the world. No one else is going to pay for them so it's up to us as Christians to do so. That's a really practical way that we as a church can help out our brothers who are going out spreading the truth around the world. But secondly, I think this is a great encouragement to us to not feel down about the fact that maybe we're not out doing that ourselves. Sometimes I think we can feel a bit inadequate that we're not the people out on the front line doing the missionary work. Or maybe we feel a bit, we don't feel quite the right thing because we're not gifted with evangelism. We're not the kind of up-the-front person who's great at presenting that message. But this shows that we can be in partnership with people like that together. Look at me in verse 8. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. It's not them working for the truth and us just bankrolling it. It's not us working for the truth and then just taking our money. It's us working together for the truth. We can't all be evangelists. We can't all be missionaries. But we can all work together as a team, each using our gifts together to build the other one up so that through our money things like the Myanmar Bible College can keep going and indigenous Burmese people can preach the gospel to these people as they should. I mean, I've got to say, coming to church by the bridge has been really encouraging like that. I, I was actually surprised at just how much ministry support we do have for missionaries, far more than my church at home in Tasmania. It's really encouraging and I just really want to see us continue to do that. But of course that means thinking about how we're going to fund it and that may mean some changes for you and for me. But secondly, we've gone from Gaius but we now come to another character, Diotrephes, my second point. Now, Gaius was told to continue walking in the truth by supporting those teachers who preach the truth. But as we read on in 3 John, we begin to see that maybe that is not such a simple task as it might at first seem. Look at me at verse 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. You see, it would seem reading between the lines here that this particular church has been, in commas, taken over by this guy, Diotrephes. We don't know exactly who he is. There's every chance that he's even an elder. We know that there are elders uh, in the New Testament who don't always do what they should and Diotrephes, if he's one of those, is certainly, he fits that bill. John has already written to the church, we can see that there, asking them, I think probably, to show hospitality to these missionaries. And yet Diotrephes has said, no way, I'm just not interested in that. Now it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the kind of motivations that lead an elder of a church to block out gospel preaching missionaries, you wonder how a person gets to that stage. And yet, well it's actually quite basic. It's ambition. I wrote to the church, verse 9, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. It's ambition. It's ambition. Now, it's funny because ambition in our culture isn't a dirty word. Like, it's a good thing. We're told to be ambitious. You can get those really naff kind of posters which have, you know, some, I don't know, like generally a fluffy scene. Maybe, probably not kittens for ambition. That's generally, generally find them more in churches. Uh, But, you know, you see a killer whale. Or the one I like, there's a mountaineer. There's a mountaineer and he's just, he's just driving up to the top of the mountain and, you know, there's this glorious kind of sunset in the background and there he is and he, you can he's absolutely on top of the world and it says, Ambition, aspire to climb as far as you can dream. I personally like the alternative one which is, uh, it looks almost exactly the same but for the picture, it's got a bear about to catch a salmon and it says, Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> But ambition is still a good thing, isn't it? That's what we like to think. But here you see this kind of ambition has gone all rotten because it's self-ambition and it leads to all sorts of other behaviours. You can see it there in verse 10, three things. He builds up his own authority by undermining the authority of others. So if I come I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not only that he not only tears down those but also refuses to listen to those who oppose him. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Not only that, he doesn't refuse to listen to them himself, he stops anyone else from listening to these missionaries. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. This guy is a tyrant, pure and simple, and he's using all the tactics the tyrants have used for thousands of years, You only need to look at what's happening on in Myanmar at the moment to see exactly that going on. What happens when there's the merest whiff of dissent amongst the populace? The military junta comes down, they start smear campaigning the organisers, they start arresting and imprisoning opposition leaders and they crack down on communications like telephone and internet. That's what they do, that's what tyrants do. They must have read Three John because that's exactly what he's doing. So we can now see why Gaius is looking so nervously at these missionaries across his dinner table as they're standing in front of him. They're asking him to welcome them into his church and yet what they're asking him to do and what John's asking him to do is to stand up against a powerful elder who's pressuring him not to welcome visiting teachers. If he does welcome them, he risks being kicked out of a church along with all the support networks that that involves. It's not just him being kicked out of a church, it would be almost certainly his family as well. And all of this, for people who the letter admits are basically strangers to him, it would be like being asked to become a resistance member in the underground army against the Burmese junta. It must have been very tempting for him to refuse John's request, I would have thought, and send them on their way empty handed. But again, it tells us very important things about the nature of walking in the truth. You see, thankfully there are no diatrophies here at Church by the Bridge, or at least not to the best of my knowledge. But sometimes we will find ourselves personally in diatrophies' position, I think. None of us is without personal ambition. I'm certainly not. And our desire to be first can creep into all sorts of areas of church life. Maybe you want a particular position, Maybe you really want to be a BFG leader, a Bible study leader. Maybe you'd like to be a church warden, someone in the ruling council, so to speak. Maybe you want to be part of the music team and you're really shattered that someone's overlooked you for that. Maybe it's not even anything as official as that. Maybe it's just that you particularly want to be part of that social set over there or to be seen as a big wheel in this particular ministry, someone who's gifted in X or Y or Z. I mean, I'm preaching to myself as much as to you when I say that. I've done it myself. I remember down in Tassie, I, uh, just through circumstance really, a lot of us young guys ended up doing quite a bit of preaching and I remember personal ambition kind of really coming into it. I found myself almost unconsciously, subtly, making sure that I never praised another preacher too much or never so much that anyone would think that they were better than me or I'd find myself very subtly denigrating my critics saying, yeah, well I know they didn't think that sermon was that great but there were really good reasons for that which they didn't really know about and I'm sure that didn't really mean it or it wasn't true or I just ignored criticism. It happens. It happens to me and I'm sure it happens to you as well. Little ambitions creep up into our souls and they take things over. Now, when it's just on our own, maybe it doesn't have that big an effect on the church but the problem is it so seldom stays on its own. This kind of thing spreads because like-minded people get together and form agendas and form little cohorts and then gradually the church stops being about spreading the gospel to the world. It stops being about walking in the truth and starts being about minority interests within the church We just start looking in at ourselves rather than looking out and in ten years' time we may wonder why we're no longer funding missionaries because all of a sudden we've become a holy huddle or a social club and that is just the last thing we want to do, isn't it? Sometimes we won't always find ourselves in Biotropy's position. Sometimes we're finding ourselves in Gaius' position though. There's the pressure to reject good teaching Sometimes we have pressure from other people, or we feel it, who are on about their own little agenda. We get caught up in a particular thing or a particular point, something which they want to lobby about, and they start criticising teachers for not focusing on that enough because they're always going on about something else, maybe even the main game, heaven forbid. We've got to defend people from those kind of criticisms. If our preachers and if our teachers and if the person who meets one on one with you, or in whatever context you're taught the Bible in this church, if they are sticking to the main game, if they're walking in the truth, if they're about the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth to die to save sinners and to rise again, then that's good. And no matter how maybe stodgy or boring or whatever that teaching is, that's good, isn't it? That's walking in the truth. And maybe it doesn't pander to your particular wheelbarrow. Maybe it doesn't pander to mine. But that's not the main game. That's not what God's about. Because God's ambitions are far higher. Because, thirdly, something far more important than both of those things is ambition itself. I said before that Diatrophy's problem was ambition, but I don't think it was that he was too ambitious, it's that he wasn't ambitious enough. It wasn't that he had too much ambition, but too little. He wanted to set up his own little kingdom of his church where he, where he could have been a part of something so much bigger. He could have been, according to verse 8, working together for the truth. And I can't think of a bigger project to be involved in than that. I said he was a tyrant and maybe compared him to like a military junta in a place like Myanmar. Well, he wasn't even as impressive as that. He was more like Bob Jelly from Sea Change, if you've ever seen that show the petty real estate agent who wants to be the chief in charge of Oyster Bay on the New South Wales coast. You see, that's not our motivation to church life, is it? Being a big wheel in a small church. No, our motivation is the truth, isn't it? Being part of something bigger than this country, bigger than this world, as big as the universe, the Bible says. That Jesus Christ will be declared as Lord to the whole world as the one means by which we can be right with God because he died for us who just don't deserve it so that we can be right with him. There is no bigger project to be part of, no bigger ambition for us as individuals or us as this church. And that's the church guys had to make. It's particularly typified by Demetrius, my third and final point. Look at verse 11, Dear friend, Don't imitate what's evil but what's good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Gaius has to make a choice about who he's going to imitate. He could imitate Diotrephes. It would be much easier. He's not going to come under the hammer if he does that or he could imitate Demetrius who's well spoken of by everyone, who was possibly even one of the missionaries standing there in the room with him as he ponders over this letter and yet it's going to cost him to do it. It's the same choice we have to make. Will I make the spread of the truth of the gospel my top priority or will I cave in to my own petty ambitions or fail to stand up against the petty ambitions of others? In short... Will I keep walking in the truth? That's the question that this asks me. That's the question it asks all of us. Now, I don't know what decision Guy has made. The letter does and go on to tell us. I hope that the fact that 3 John survived and is now in our Bibles means that he didn't throw it away in disgust, that he kept it and it made its way into Scripture and that he pulled through. But we don't know. But I do know what we should be doing. I know what I should be doing and that's something that we should be praying So let me pray.